basket and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, Remnant. Uh, it's good to have everybody here, as David said. Yes, uh, COVID is uh, making its rounds, but we're grateful. Uh, for those of you that are watching online, for those of us that are here together. And uh, let's begin with prayer. God, I pray that you would lift our eyes to heaven and we would see that your help, our help, comes from there. We pray for each of us that you would remove the shackles from our eyes. Uh, we pray that the scales would fall and we pray we'd be able to see you. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have ever been to a progressive dinner? Anybody? Handful, right? Pre-COVID probably. Uh, if you're from the UK, maybe you're used to a safari supper. Anybody have done a safari supper? Okay. Uh, one person back there, like a progressive dinner, but it's, um, you don't know where you're going the next time, and there's little hints to get you where you're going. But, uh, you know, if you're unfamiliar with either a progressive dinner or a safari supper, the way it works is you have uh, cocktails at one place, and then after that, you move to another place for appetizers. And then after that, you have the main course here, and then dessert at another place, and maybe after dinner drinks at another place, the dinner progresses. Well, that may be a helpful picture in our mind as we think about what's called the Lord's table, because it is a meal which God instituted as the Jewish Passover and then is transformed by Jesus Christ, but still looks ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a meal that progresses with a theme. And when you look at the Lord's table from past, present, and future, it teaches you different things. You get insight into it, and that's where I want to spend our time. We're wrapping up a year-long series on what we're calling spiritual practice uh, or spiritual formation. How do Christians understand this idea of growing in God's grace? How do, how do, how do Christians understand the idea of being transformed into the moral beauty of Jesus Christ? And one of those things are sacraments, outward signs of inward grace, baptism and the Lord's Supper. God giving us these multimedia things to convince us that his promise of grace is for real for those that believe in it. 
He wants to seal his grace in our hearts. So this is the second week we're spending on the Lord's table. And as we consider past, present, future, there's three things that I'm going to give us to think about. Not two this week, but three. I'm going to stretch your attention. Anticipation, realization, and consummation. Anticipation, realization, consummation. Say those with me, won't you? Anticipation, realization, consummation. All right. So let's start with anticipation as we think about where the meal started, where it was. Now, uh, growing up in the pride of uh, the pride of ketchup heaven, Pittsburgh, uh, that's the center of Heinz ketchup, the only ketchup, by the way. And, uh, but there was a um, commercial in the 70s, maybe some of you have seen this thing replay, and it had um, that song by Carly Simon, Anticipation. You know that song? Anybody know that song? A couple of you know that? And it was this little kid, and he's just like waiting for the ketchup to come out. Anticipation. The song we keep playing, it's just waiting. The idea is that the ketchup is so thick and rich, it takes forever to get out. There's a little trick, by the way, how to get it out. You can talk to me after the service about that. But anyway, anticipation. Now, the Passover, similar to the way that Christians celebrate Christmas, there were two celebrations of it. Just like a church might have a Christmas Eve service and a Christmas Day service. There was the Passover meal that was celebrated in the household, in the home, and then there was a week-long celebration. You heard that reading that talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? This idea that there was to be no leaven anywhere, which spoke to the fact that Israel had to be holy in God's sight. It was a symbol. This Passover, the reason, the reason why this is important is because the setting for the Lord's Supper is the Passover meal and the Passover week. And all the timing was just as God planned it. In fact, Jesus, who says all throughout the Gospels, it's not my time yet, it's not my time yet, it's not my time yet, when he comes to that meal, says, it's my appointed time. It is my appointed time. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus begins the meal by saying to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to share this meal with you. Why? Well, first of all, it was the end of a long time of waiting especially in the heart of God. You see, the Passover meal told a story, but there was a bigger story that God always meant to tell. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Passover, and what a strange thing to, for God to institute. Israel is in bondage and slavery. God's been uh, a confronting Pharaoh of Egypt through Moses and Aaron saying, let my people go. This all culminates when Pharaoh seeks to destroy the children, the male children of Israel. 
God says enough is enough. He moves in. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart, and then he'll say, okay, I'll let you go, and then he hardens his heart. And finally, it gets to the point where God has to bring a most terrible judgment. His own children will die. They will suffer judgment. And so the Lord says to Israel through Moses, this is what I want you to do. Now put yourself again in their shoes. We can read back and go, yeah, that probably made perfect sense. I think it went, probably meant no sense, right? He says, I want you to have a meal, and here's the first thing. You're going to actually dress for the meal as if you're going to leave right away. You're going to wear to-go clothes. It's like you're going to have your shoes and your coat on and everything there. And then the meal's going to start off with bitter herbs, Then there'll be four cups of wine. And I want you to sing hymns from this particular part of the Bible. And then you're going to get a lamb. And you're going to sacrifice the lamb. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to put it on the doorpost and the crossbar, the lentil, of your house. And I don't want you to go outside. Because I'm going to pass by. And I'm going to bring judgment. Now, this meal was the story of the table that they celebrated for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If they knew anything, it was that meal. It's the meal that Jesus celebrated over and over again. But finally, on this night, that meaning is being changed. It's the end of waiting. End of what? Well, if you go to um, another place in the Gospels, the Mount of Transfiguration, and let me step back to say, uh, the Passover in its theological theme, and its big theme, was the idea of liberation. God would liberate his people from an oppressor, who in that case was Egypt. But the oppression of injustice, God will liberate. He will exodus them. And so you fast forward to the ministry of Jesus before this Passover he's celebrating on a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration where God pulls back the veil because Jesus, God in the flesh, they saw a lot of flesh, right? So much so that people would say, who's this guy making these claims? This is Joe's son, isn't it? From so-and-so. But Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain. Mountains are big in the Bible as places of revelation. Pulls back the veil and Jesus is beaming in glory. But he has a visitor from two prophets that figure big in the Old Testament who met God on a mountain, Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that Jesus spoke to them about his exodus, his departure. Literally the word exodus. And so what we're being told in the gospel in the meal, as Jesus places himself in the center of the meal, his death and his resurrection being the meaning of the meal, what it is, he's saying, now finally, the liberation that you really need is here. From a different sort of oppressor, the oppression of guilt and the power of sin 
in every one of our hearts. Now, how do we know that's the connection? Because even the Israelites had to put blood on their doorposts, right? We know it was more than just deliverance from oppression from Egypt. Because as much as Israel was the victim in this case, they weren't a sinless people. And God said, unless that blood is there, I will have to judge you. Because who of us here, who any of us, have loved our neighbor as we've loved ourselves? Who of us has done righteousness and goodness and justice day in and day out? And we might say, come on, Glenn, that's just unreasonable. No one can do that, exactly. But is God supposed to give up on the standard? Do you want to worship a God who actually is less than love? That demands less than righteousness? Less than goodness? Of course not. All of us find ourselves at that table needing blood applied, as Andrew said so well, to the doorpost and the crossbeam of our heart and soul. And so, Jesus comes, places himself at the center as the great liberator, and he says this in Mark. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a, some of you know it, ransom. And that word means to buy back, buy back someone that's in bondage. The word redeemer means the same thing. And so Jesus at this meal brings the the fruition of all the Passover meal to this place where he goes, finally. You see, it was always God's heart to save. If this table tells you anything, it's that God wants to save you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know this table, even though you won't partake of it, because you got to have faith for it to make any sense, it's still preaching, it's proclaiming to you that God wants to save. And for those of you that week into week come out and wonder, don't ever doubt that God wants to liberate you. That's what this meal is about. This is why he came. This was the longing. Why did Jesus earnestly desire to share that meal? Why does he earnestly desire for us to share it week in and week out? Because he wants to persuade you and me that we're liberated from our guilt, our fear of death, the great accuser, the devil, our own sin. We're a liberated people. I mean, I praise God that we get to live in a place where we get to worship freely, Independence Day. But as David was getting at, this pales in comparison. You, you could have all the freedoms you want and still be a person that's in bondage, right? I mean, if you're in service to your pleasures, you're not free. If you can't ever put your pleasures down, you're not free. If you can't lay your rights down, not, not out of oppression, but out of love for somebody, you're not free. And so, Jesus, the Passover lamb, ends the anticipation. That's the past, view from the past. How about a view from the present? Now, God commanded that the Passover lamb 
be a mature male and be spotless. What do you have in Jesus? You have the most mature Israelite that ever lived. And you have one who is spotless without sin. Now, the Apostle Peter, who was in Jesus' inner circle, who lived with Jesus day in and day out for three years straight, said this. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. For this reason, we've been redeemed, not with perishable silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, I'll tell you something, man. Three years, if you spent three hours with me, or anybody here, would you be willing on the point of death to say, he committed no sin? Sinless Glenn. No way. But he had to be the spotless lamb. Without why? Because the book of Ephesians would say, those that trust in him become holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle. In the book of Ephesians, as Paul is talking about marriage, he transitions into the greater marriage, the marriage between God, the groom, Jesus Christ, and all those that believe, the bride. And he says that the bride is without wrinkle or spot. Why? Because the groom is. The groom is. In this meal... is a uh, sacrament, it's not a sacrifice. I need to be clear about that because we're talking a lot about a lamb who was sacrificed. And this is where Protestants would differ with the Catholic Church that would say that actually this meal, when it's done, the mass is a reenactment of the sacrifice of Jesus which God's people need to be continually forgiven. And respectfully, I would say that's wrong. The Bible says that the Lamb of God died, rose, and there is one mediator between God and man. The sacrifice is completed. This is a done deal. We're not repeating something like that. That is to say that it's a realization. Jesus goes on to say, this is a new covenant. A covenant is a super promise. A super promise between God and us. In the Bible, there were two covenants. There was a covenant of creation and works. When you read about Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, if they would obey and be faithful to God, paradise would continue. But they don't. They wreck paradise, just like you and I wreck paradise. Wreck what's good and true and beautiful. And so God established right away a covenant of grace, a super promise of grace. And he says in the Garden of Eden, right? Somewhat, uh, you know, as a kind of a hint, as a shadow, he says, and at the heart of the super promise, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That there will be a super deliverer come from a woman. The New Testament would identify that as Jesus coming from Mary. But then as you follow this great super promise of grace, it begins to have like little highlights to it that teach us more and more about God's grace. For Abraham, the highlight was the idea of righteousness that comes by faith and that God plans to collect his grace, is going to collect the entire nations. And actually, those that believe and follow Jesus 
are to be a blessing to the nations, not a curse. They're to bring the blessing of grace to the world, to the nations. And then with Moses, we get a view of the law of God and how much it demands and how much we need the grace, but a sacrifice is needed. And you go to David, the covenant of grace shows this idea of a throne and that God's son will reign forever and those that believe will reign with him. All these things, but it's when you come to the new covenant, which Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about, we get this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put it within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. This is what he's saying here. In the new covenant, grace is even more powerful than it could ever have been before the lamb came. There's an effectual nature. Andrew was saying, rejoice, we live in a day of grace, a day of favor. You should rejoice, I should rejoice. There's not a better time to be living. Not a better time, why? Because the lamb has come, he's accomplished the work. He's reigning in heaven, he's sent his spirit, the very Holy Spirit of God, and he's applying the effectual grace of God, the powerful grace of God in a way that's never been applied before. And we're racing to the finish line. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You've been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. You and I are under these promises, and this table is to seal them in you and to seal them, just like food strengthens the body and wine gladdens the heart. The salvation does the same in you and I. It's a better covenant. When Jesus says, here's a new covenant, it's a better covenant that I'm bringing. And that's good news. One theologian I really like because he's insightful and honest, he said, my most frequent feeling on Sunday is numbness. I mean, I come to church, I don't feel great about myself. I don't feel terrible about myself. I just kind of, there it is. Right? I think a lot of us feel that way when we come to worship. Sort of stagnant. And so, God does something uh, that flesh and blood people like you and I mean. He uses his word to speak to us spiritually then he takes these sacraments and he comes to us physically. This is to remind you and I that God came bodily for you, physically for you, not just sort of up in your head. He came into space and time, just like this bread and cup is here, for you. When he talks about body and blood, some theologians will say that that refers to incarnation and redemption. Body, that he came in the flesh. Blood, that he came to atone for sin. Propitiation is another big word. What I'm trying to say this is communion is meant to conquer our noisy consciences. This table is meant to conquer your guilt. It's meant to make you confident. 
You got the dinner invitation. You're invited by the Father. Conquering whatever we carry in the baggage we have. And as someone has said, what goes deepest into the conscience goes widest to the world. Right? I mean, insecure and guilty people don't do a whole lot for God. Like, there is sort of like, maybe if you've been in the Christian faith for a long time or part of another religion, you know, there's certain things that'll help you, like, you know, shine for a little bit. Like guilt, that'll get me working really hard. Or just flat out resolve. You know, that'll work for a while. But typically, people that are driven like that aren't really into loving. You know? If, if they've kind of, if they actually accomplish something, there's just kind of a bit of a smugness. You know, a little bit of like, I can teach you the way. But the grace of God will lead you and I to radical acts of love and self-sacrifice and forgiveness that guilt and fear never will. What goes deepest into the conscience goes widest into the world. That's why we named our church Grace. We knew that it is the pivotal thing. It's a table of grace. But lastly, that's past, that's present. Let's just talk about future. Um... Some of you, maybe all of you, uh, you've planned a meal. And, uh, or, or if you're someone that uh, does event planning or if you've planned a wedding, you know, part of the fun you get to do is uh, you go in when you're ordering the menu, and if they're really nice, you get a little taste of it. Right? You get to taste the food that you're going to have. Taste the food that you're going to have that comes at the feast. That's what we're doing here. But this is part of a greater feast. This is what's found when Jesus says, and I, maybe you've always wondered, I, I had when Jesus said, I, I won't have this meal until I drink it new with you in my kingdom. Why does he say that? You know, and, and we don't know whether or not he just took the whole meal there or he even refrained from taking the last cup at the table to illustrate that to them. But it, it all goes around this idea of the kingdom. And immediately he takes our head forward, he takes our thoughts forward to the book of Revelation where we're told, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding lamb of the supper. You see... Jesus will not eat this meal again until two things happen. One is till he gathers his pan-ethnic bride from the nations. Until he, until he has everybody at the table that needs to be at the table. You know, if you've ever had a family meal or a Friendsgiving, right, and a bunch of it, you know, you're not going to start until everybody's at the table. Jesus cannot start until all his children are gathered in. And that includes you. Do you believe God would hold off the whole table if you weren't there? If you're understanding what this is, yeah. And so as you and I suffer and get tired of the world and get tired of evil, God goes, yeah, I know, I hate evil too. And we'll war together. 
But you need to know the reason I'm delaying, the reason I'm delaying is because I'm still gathering. I'm gathering. And the Bible tells us it's a number without count, like sand on the seashore. God's waiting because he's being gracious. But everybody has to be around the table. And that's why we, we talked about this last week, we want our table to reflect God's table. But lastly, Jesus will not celebrate this meal until he establishes his kingdom on earth. That's what he's saying. When I return and I rule and reign with justice and righteousness, we will celebrate that feast together because the work will be done. So to close out, um, you know, I was thinking, I don't know what got me into the thinking of it, but if you've ever watched any of these sort of period films uh, where you have servants and higher class, you know, the servants uh, typically get portions of the upstairs food, but they eat downstairs, right? But sometimes once a year, there would be a servant's ball. And the servants would get to come upstairs and eat upstairs. And I was reading one account of it, and there was some servant, and he said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, the refreshments were in the billiard room, which was usually for the family. And it was fine, rich fare. And he said, so one night a year, we could live like them upstairs. One night a year, we could live like them upstairs. One time a week, we get to eat and live like them upstairs. Right? This is what we're in store for. This is a foretaste of the feast that we'll have together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this long table that stretches throughout history. Everything that is meant, countless families of, the, of Israel, sharing the Passover, all the Lord's Supper that have occurred for over 2,000 years, all of them that happen today. And thank you that you have set a table before us in this community. And we pray, oh God, we, we anticipate you to be gracious to us right now. I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially those that feel a noisy conscience, an insecure conscience, I pray that you would seal your grace. I pray that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. In Christ's name, amen.